Deuteronomy 29 tonight and chapter 30, uh, Lord willing. So I, I promised you last week that I would make up that extra five minutes to you. So here's what we'll, we'll do is that you just let me know which day you want me to do that. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, chapter 29. As we come to this point in our study of Deuteronomy, Moses is just a few days from going to heaven. He's in the last moments of his life. And this chapter begins what is now the third and final sermon in this book of three sermons. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's three sermons, and chapter 29 now begins the third. And this one is unique. It's, it's really a lot more like a church service than it is like a sermon. Because it doesn't just consist of preaching. There's some other things, some other orders of business that Moses deals with during this last segment. And, and it would almost be like if you were there that day, you would be handed a bulletin or a program. And you would open up the cover and you would see the outline or the order of service for that last meeting that they would have together. And this is what you would see. First order of business, which is chapter 29, is the covenant. The covenant that God enters into signs, seals with his people. They they do some church business, if you would, in chapter 29. And the covenant is kind of presented, read, and um, ratified in chapter 29. Then in chapter 30, that would be the preaching section of the, the church service. Chapter 30 is two things. First of all, a prophecy concerning Israel's future. And then a final proposition that really sums up all of what he said throughout the whole book. That's in chapter 30. Then in chapter 31, you have Joshua's inauguration. Joshua is going to be Moses' successor, the one who brings the people into the promised land. And and it's chapter 31 where he is officially inaugurated or ordained, hands are laid on him, and he is appointed by God through Moses to be the one that will then bring them into uh, the promised land. Then, chapter 32 is the closing song. It's literally a song that Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit that he was then told to teach to the children of Israel for their successive generations. So chapter 32 is the closing song. Chapter 33 is the benedictatory blessing. He blesses the tribes one by one, and he does it throughout the chapter. In chapter uh, 33, as he gives his final blessing to the 12 tribes. And then chapter 34 is the death of Moses. It's the, the, the kind of the, uh, the narrative behind Moses' death and how he goes on to heaven, and then the book is over. So we're really almost done, and depending on um, how quickly we can get through it, just a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll be on to Joshua. But um, tonight, we begin now with chapter 29, and what we have in chapter 29 is, again, the covenant that God is making with his people, uh, Israel, through Moses. Now, the word covenant is just a biblical 
theological word that is equivalent to a contract. It's just a contract that God is entering into or an agreement. And so God is entering into an agreement with his people. God is the first contractor. He likes to deal with man according to covenants or contracts. We see it throughout the Bible. And here, this contract that he is making with the people concerns two things. It concerns the people's relationship with God. It's a covenant that deals with their relating to him and also their possession of the land that he's giving them. And if you've been with us in Deuteronomy, by now you understand that they're about to move into the promised land, uh, the, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this covenant deals with their relationship with God and their uh, right to the land um, that would become known as Israel. And so that's the covenant here. And it, and it comes with very official um, segments. The first eight verses is the preamble, which is basically the introduction. Then in verses 9 through 11, it it, it discusses the persons that are involved, the people that are involved in this contract, this covenant. Then uh, verses 12 through 17 give to us the agreement. What's being agreed upon? And really, it's just verse 12. It's a very short agreement. And then those other verses just explain it. And then verses 18 to 23 give the reasons. This is why we're entering into this covenant. And then uh, verses 24 to uh, 28, the witnesses. You always have to have witnesses if you're entering into a contract. And then verse 29 is the mystery. And we'll get there uh, eventually. So here we are, chapter 29, verse 1. And here it is. Here's the preamble in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So this isn't the covenant of the law or the Ten Commandments. This is a separate covenant that he's making with them. It says, Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet, the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, And we conquered them. We took their land and we gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So in this preamble, this introduction to the covenant that he's making with them, Moses essentially reminds them of four things, four signs that the Lord did 
for them while he was among them in the time between Egypt and where they are presently. The first of those four signs is, of course, their redemption from Egypt. You have seen what I did to Pharaoh and to his armies and to the people of that land and how I redeemed you with an outstretched arm miraculously providing redemption and deliverance for you from that nation. And so redemption is the first thing that he holds up and says, this is something that God has done for you. Then the second thing that he holds up before them uh, there in verse 5 is that he also preserved them. He says, for 40 years I led you in this wilderness. And in that time, your shoes didn't wear off from off your feet. Your clothes didn't wear off. You had everything that you needed for 40 years while you were wandering through that wilderness. God preserved you while you were there. The third thing is provision. He says, God fed you every day. There was manna in the morning. There was food in the evening. There was constant water, a supply for you so that you were sustained. You didn't have to bake bread for yourselves. You didn't have to stomp grapes to make wine or other drink. Everything that you needed for those 40 years was miraculously provided for you by the Lord during that time. And so redemption, preservation, provision, and then finally protection. And when you came and you approached this area where we are now, and Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, when they came out to try to wipe you out, the Lord delivered them into our hands, and we are now possessors of their land. And so Moses calls their attention to these four things that God did for them as he was leading them to the place where they are now. But the sad part is there in verse 4 where it says, However, even though God has done these things among you, even though you've seen the signs and you've experienced his power and his preservation, his provision, his redemption, he has not given you eyes that can see or perceive or a heart that understands or ears that can hear. You've seen it, you've lived through it, but yet you have not, listen, you have not been able to connect. He says, you have not been able to connect the provider or the providence with the provider. You've had the providence. God has done these things in your midst. But yet, you haven't been able to recognize and realize that it's God that has done those things. How often are we like the children of Israel? If we look back over the course of our lives or over the course of a section of our history, we can see how the Lord has led us, how he's preserved, how he's protected, how he has has kept us in the center of his will, even how he's blessed us. And yet somehow we fail to connect the provision or the protection or the preservation or whatever other good thing God's doing in our life. We fail to connect it with the one who is doing that for us. And what we do then is that we complain. It's amazing how often throughout the Bible when you read how often God condemns complaining. And I believe that the reason why God condemns complaining is because when we complain... It literally blinds us from seeing the hand of the Lord in the various areas of our life. It 
bars us from perceiving that it's him that's doing those things, that he's the one that's providing and and helping and, and doing the things that he's doing. On the other hand, the Bible also tells us over and over again that we're to be thankful, right? Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And countless times the Bible tells us to be thankful. Why? Because I believe that when we give thanks, it opens our eyes to see where the hand of the Lord has intervened and helped us in ways that we never could have done for ourselves or ways that we never would have perceived otherwise. See, so the Lord was moving on their behalf, but Moses said, you never recognized it from the beginning, even until now. But he brings it to their attention anyways, and it will be significant in, the, in, in what he's going to go on to say. So now he gets into um, uh, the, the, the persons involved in this covenant here in verse 9. He says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. In other words, God says, I'm making this covenant with every person that is represented here today. Jew and non-Jew alike, if they're in your midst and they're in this company and they're going into this land uh, and they're hearing my voice, then they are uh, a part of this covenant. And then in verse 12 now, he gives to them what the covenant is. And here it is, the drum roll. uh, This is what it is. Very short, very sweet, very simple. Verse 12, he says this. He says that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today, and here it is, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you. So part one of this covenant, here's what God gets out of the deal. He gets the people that are in the audience that day listening to Moses. God says, this is what I want out of the deal. I want you. And you say, okay, well, this is what God gets. God gets a stubborn, rebellious, self-willed, hard-hearted, impercepted, obstinate people that have no appreciation for him or recognition of what it is that he's doing in his life. That's what God is getting out of the deal. Now, what do they get? He says, and that he may be a God to you. They get a God who promises to redeem them. A God who promises to preserve them in all of their goings, even if it's 40 years in the wilderness. A God who promises to provide for them, even if it means that he has to rain down bread from heaven and bring forth water out of a rock. He promises that he's going to provide for them. And a God that's going to protect them. A God that will sustain them and not allow their enemies to have any foothold or take anything from them or to knock them down at all. But he's going to protect them regardless of of where they're at. That's what they get out of the deal. Seems like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? It gets a little bit sweeter. He goes on and he says this. He says, uh, second half of verse 13, he says, Just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so part B of this covenant is the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was that the land that would become known as Israel 
would belong to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, anyone who says that the Jewish people do not belong in the land that they are in presently, all they need to do is turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29, where God has chronicled the contract for all of eternity, for anyone to see that God has deeded it literally to the Jews. They have the covenantal contract. The, the title deed to the land belongs to them. And so God says, what I get is I get a people. What you get is you get me and you get the land that I promised unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. And then in verse 14, he, 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 he extends the contract beyond the audience of those that are just listening to him there, and he brings it way into the future. He says, I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as him who is not here with us today. So even those who haven't been born yet, those in future generations that are yet to come, this covenant that I am making is with them as well. And then he brings up in verse 16 and 17, he says, For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. What he does here is he reminds them of the impotent idols that were served and worshipped in the land of Egypt. You saw what they did, and you saw the effect that worshipping those idols had upon the lives of those that were there in Egypt. And there's an incredible contrast that would be painted in the minds of the audience as they would consider that they serve the true and the living God. No image, no idol, no carved you know, wooden or stone idol that they would bow down to, but yet a God that could provide and a God that was powerful and alive and at work in their life. As opposed to the Egyptians that had something tangible but yet it could do nothing for them as far as helping them. And, and in fact, the things that they did to worship those idols were destroying their lives. It brought them lower as a nation and lower as a people. And then here's why God brings that up, verse 18. He says, so that, and th- there's your reason right there. He says, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of these nations. And listen, here's why God is entering into this contract with them. He's saying, I don't want you to turn away from me to serve a God that is not a God that cannot do anything in your life. And that's the reason why he does it. And then he goes on, and here's what he's going to do in these next couple of verses, is he's going to tell them why he doesn't want them to turn away. Why, God, why don't you want us to turn away from you? Because here's why, God says. Notice in the second half of verse 18, he says, first of all, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. Listen carefully to me, church. The first thing that you get, whether it be them in that day or whether it be you and me now, the first thing you get when you turn away from the true and the living God is you get bitterness. When you have tasted what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord and when you've heard his voice 
and when you've experienced fellowship with him, and when you've understood the, the, the joy of having a clear conscience, of, of knowing that I'm right with God, and that there's nothing right now going in my life that's unconfessed or that is hindering me from coming to him, but that we're, we're right. This is working between me and God. And to have that and everything that goes along with it, and then to trade that for something else, to say, you know, I've enjoyed this for a time now, but now I'm thinking that I can turn from that fellowship and and turn from your ways, Lord, and I can do something else. I'm just going to add this new thing to my life. I'm going to start going out on the weekends again. I'm going to start, you know, getting into, you know, quick, short relationships that, that don't really mean anything just for the pleasure of it or for the, uh, you know, the, the, the excitement of being in those circumstances. You do that and you turn away from the Lord and all that leads to is bitterness. And you know it if you've done it. You know it if you've been there or if you are there. Because once you turn from the sweetness of fellowshipping with him onto anything else, it can only be bitterness. And the more of him that you've experienced and the more of him you know, the more the old bitter water of the world tastes. And so he says, lest there be among you any root of bitterness that you would experience the drinking of the bitter water of the world. The second thing that he goes on there and he says uh, in verse 19, the second thing that you'll get if you turn away from the Lord is you'll get a whole big strong dose of self-deception. Notice this. He says, and so it may not happen that when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. He says, if you do this, if you turn from me, then what's going to happen is that you're going to deceive yourself into thinking that, well, I can do it. I can turn away from the Lord and I can start flirting with these other things and nothing bad is going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to get found out. I'm not going to get in trouble. He's not going to chastise me. He doesn't really mind because, hey, what I'm doing, it's not really affecting or hurting anybody else. And so just because, because it's just me and because it's inside and nobody knows, then God doesn't really mind and he's too busy to really care about those kind of things. And Moses says, don't think that. He says, lest he turns and he blesses himself in his heart, saying that I'm not going to walk in the ways of the Lord, but I'm still going to be blessed. He says, don't deceive yourself. You cannot turn away from the Lord and do well. That's been the whole point of everything Moses said from chapter 1 up until this point. Don't think you can turn aside and think that you're going to be all right with God. He goes on in uh, verse 20 and he says, The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven now notice that it says under heaven he doesn't say from it within heaven he says from under heaven that means from the land of the living where you and i and that's what sin does romans six twenty three says that the wages of sin is what death that's right and if you flirt with sin and then you're bound by sin and you're overcome with sin the result of it is that you're going to destroy your life and god's saying i don't want that to happen to you and that's why I'm giving you this. 
Because I don't want to see that happen to you. That's not my heart for you. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It doesn't delight God's heart at all to see someone go astray and then to see their life shipwrecked, literally, because of the decisions that they've made and the path that they've chosen. The proverb says, He that departs from the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. And that should strike fear in our hearts. Not fear that we should tremble and shy away from God, but fear that we ought to be close to him and say, Lord, keep me in the way of understanding. He goes on, and the next thing that he says would happen, verse 21, he says, and then the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever in your own life felt like, you know, you're, you're in a company of people, maybe you're in a congregational setting, you're sitting in a church, you're hearing a Bible study, but you feel as though you're completely separated from everything else that's going on in the room. Maybe everybody else in the room is engaged and, and, and water from heaven is just billowing over the rest of the people and you sit there and, and outwardly you look no different than anyone else, but inwardly you know that you're separated. That you're, quote unquote, in the woodshed, so to speak, you know. God's dealing with you on something. God says, I'm going to do it. There's going to be a separation. There's going to be a distancing if you walk that way. And then he goes on, verse 22, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it, so there's, there's physical uh, degradation, that the whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. So the final thing that he lists there that will happen to anyone who turns away from the Lord is that they're going to they're gonna live in a dry and desert wasteland that their soul is going to be so parched and so dry and so thirsty that they will literally feel like they're living in a wasteland. The most miserable person on the planet is the Christian or the person of God that has turned away from God and is trying to find satisfaction in the world. That's the most miserable person in the world. Because they've tasted what it is to be satisfied in the Lord. And they can't get it out there in the world. So they're estranged from God and they have enough of the world that they can't be satisfied with God. But the world can never satisfy them. They have enough of the Lord that they can't be satisfied in the world. And so that person is absolutely unsatisfied and unproductive, unfruitful, a desolate wasteland spiritually. And they know it. And God says, I don't want that to happen to you. So simple. Walk in my ways. Then the witnesses, verse 24, he says, All nations would say, Why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? And then the people would say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their father, or the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. 
Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against his land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. God is saying that everyone that sees your life when you're living in that situation, is going to know that it's my hand that's heavy upon your life, and they're going to know that it's because you turned away from me. You've forsaken me, the true and the living God. And so God gives to them this great covenant. Now, you and I, we are not under these old covenant covenants. This covenant was made with Israel. It was made with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, And the church, you and I, we are not part of that group even those that are jewish in their you know genes or in their blood that are saved by christ and part of the church they're they're not part of this covenant that he's talking about because in christ paul said there is neither jew nor greek slave nor free barbarian scythian you know that we are all one in christ jesus so so we're not a part of this covenant So God doesn't deal with us according to the covenant that he made with the children of Israel. However, the principle that he's pointing out to them that exists through the covenant is still true for you and I. That even though we're not under this covenant or under the oath of it or under the curse of it, if a Christian person turns away from God and thinks that he can live a blessed life in things that God has forbidden or that God has called an abomination, that person will experience the things that are written here. And and the reason I know that is because I'm a Christian that has gone like this, just like you, you know. And, And that's how we learn. The Bible says that as a father chastens his son, so the Lord chastens those that he loves. And so we do just like they did. We walk with the Lord for a while and we say, let me try this over here. And then the Lord says, whoosh, you know, and we go, okay. And then, and then we go, but, but he didn't say anything about, and then we go, and he goes, whoosh, and we get, and, and we, what happens is we experience these things that he is saying uh, would happen to them. We experience them in a spiritual way in our relationship with him. There's bitterness in our life. We know that the joy of the Lord is gone. There's separation. We're out of fellowship with him. We're around other Christians, but we feel like we're alienated, that there's something wrong, there's something missing. We think that we can continue to be blessed, but we're self-deceived. And then we dry up in our soul. But what happens? God brings us back. That's, that's his desire. That's what he wants. Maybe there's some here tonight, and you know that right now the Lord's speaking to you. You need to come back. You need to get right. You need to put your trust in me completely and forsake the things of of the world, of Egypt, the idols of the old life, you know. Then he gives probably one of the most incredible verses in all of the Old Testament. It's the mystery of this covenant, and it's in verse 29 here. He says this. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Now, if that verse is not highlighted in your Bible, you should highlight it. And it's really easy to memorize. It's Deuteronomy 29.29. You know, and I know that there's number people in here that, you know, you do good with numbers. When you hear a number, when you see a number, it's kind of locked in there. Lock that one in. Deuteronomy 29.29. Everybody say it with me. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29. What numbers? Okay, don't forget it. And here's why I say that. It's because every single one of us that are the people of God, God's people, we should have a file in our mind that is labeled Deuteronomy 29, 29. And that is that the secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things that are revealed are for us and for our children forever that we might do all the words of this law. That should be embedded in our minds. Why? Because sometimes people come to us and they say, hey, I don't understand the Trinity. How can God be three, but yet he's one? Is he three or is he one? Because one is not three and three is not one. And I can't understand how if there's three distinct, yet there's one in totality. And you know what we say? We say, hey, I don't know how it works. I know that the Bible teaches it. I don't understand it. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. They say, hey, what does heaven look like? And every couple of years or so, someone writes a book and claims that they've been there. Listen, Paul was there. And he says, no words, not going to try it, can't do it. He says, there's no words that can explain it. But yet we get all these other people like, well, I can, you know. What is it? The secret things belong to the Lord. You'll find out when the Lord takes you there. But until then, we don't know. We know a few things, but we don't know. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's some reasons that we can speculate and some, some you know, scriptural understanding, some personal experiences that we can relate to that and say, hey, God works all things together for good, but ultimately, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And it goes on and on. When is the second coming? What's going to happen at the rapture and how, what's it all going to look like? Look, we don't know. And there's some things that God has not revealed to us. There are questions that are yet unanswered. How do you explain eternity? Where was God a gazillion years before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? What happened then? Where did God begin? Did he begin? Where, and, and all of these things that, we, that you know, we put on the cardigan sweater and we get our pipe and we comb our hair over and we, and, and then, and, and we sit there in and, and our armchair and we, oh, well, I know the answer to these things. And, and No, no, you don't know the answer to these things because the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So, so you should have that verse memorized. However, let's come back to context for a minute. Why is this verse here? Because this isn't just the Proverbs of Moses where all of a sudden he has a senior moment. He's about to go to heaven. And so he just says, oh, by the way, the secret things belong to the Lord. Just to get... No, 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 no. Why is this verse in this chapter? Here's why. Because I believe that Moses at this point in his life, closer to eternity, than, well, as close to eternity as he can get on this side of eternity, And seeing, in a sense, the people that are before him, and at the same time, seeing into that which is to come. And then giving to them the words of this covenant, and all that it means, and all that it represents, he's going through and he's saying it to them, and then he realizes that something something doesn't add up here. Wait a minute, wait. You mean to tell me that you, holy, righteous, True, mighty, powerful, provider, sustainer, redeemer, protector. You are interested in us? Stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, wicked, 
backsliders of heart, blind, slow of heart and mind to perceive all things that, that, that you've done, unable to comprehend and understand. And, and, and wait, you're willing to go to, to great lengths and enter into covenant. Why? And, and I believe that Moses at this point is saying this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Wait, wait, okay. We get you. We understand what's in it for us. But what's in it for you? You want us? God wants you? Why does God want you? What interest does God have in your life? Furthermore, why is it that Satan, our adversary, is so intent on destroying us? Why would God go to the lengths that he would go through in in becoming one of us? Living in human flesh and then dying, being spit upon. Can you imagine it? Being beaten and hurled curses upon by his creation. Being crucified. On a, why would God go to those lengths for you? Why? What does God see in man that we don't even know about ourselves? What does God know about man that we don't even know about ourselves? The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And you know what? Honestly, church, I don't think we have even the beginning of an understanding of what man is. Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, the psalmist declares, he's sitting there, he realizes, he comes to this understanding. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Why? Who are we? Why does God care about us? What, what is man? And you know what? We don't know. We know we could explain it physically, scientifically, politically, culturally. We could define ourselves any way we want. But what does God see, and what are we really? We don't even know. But God has great interest in us to the point where he'd be willing to sell everything to purchase us and to redeem this planet so that he might have a people unto himself. Why? It's a great privilege, but it's a great mystery. What's his interest in us? Well, he goes on, he takes off the hat now of the lawyer, and he puts on the mantle of a prophet in chapter 30. He says, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. The blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Now that's big. Because what he's saying to them is like, look, hey, last chapter, chapter 28, I gave you 68 verses of blessings and curses that will come upon you in this relationship that you have with me. Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey, and captivity if you persist in disobedience. And here, Moses is prophesying to them, saying all three of those things are going to happen. You're going to be blessed, but then you're going to be cursed. And ultimately, you're going to go into captivity. And he says that when you, in captivity, call these things to mind from those nations where the Lord drives you, verse 2, and it gives us great hope. He says, and you return to the Lord your God. And obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. That when you return, that when you repent, when you change your mind, 
and you turn back to me with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Now, yes, the blessings happened. The curses happened. Captivity happened. But so also did repentance and return. Now, anytime you see a prophecy in the Bible that concerns the nation of Israel, there is always a bifold or a dual, a twofold fulfillment of that prophecy. There is always a near time frame fulfillment, and there is a long term or a far off fulfillment of that prophecy. The first or near fulfillment of this prophecy happened 1,000 years from this point in Israel's history. About 5,600 down to the 580s BC after constant rebellion and revival and rebellion and revival and corruption coming into the land. Ultimately, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and they wiped out the land of Israel completely. They carried away the Jews that survived and they brought them as slaves into their lands, into Assyria and into Babylon. And the land of Israel was laid waste. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The fields and the agriculture was destroyed and everything was left desolate, even as God said would happen to them when they rebelled. And they spent 70 years in Babylon and in Assyria as captives, as slaves. But from there, they were healed of their idolatry and God brought them back into the land, just as he promised. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, you read those books, it's all about the return from captivity back into the land of Israel. And they rebuilt the city, they rebuilt the temple, they redeveloped the land, the farms, and they became fruitful and productive. And there was a great spiritual revival in Israel. Nehemiah chapter 8, when they read the book of the law, They read Deuteronomy from 9 o'clock in the morning until 12 noon every day. They did just what we're doing right here is that they read the law to the people and it caused the people's hearts to come to life and they repented before God and God poured out his spirit on them and there was a great revival in Israel. And so the land was revived and the people turned back to God and they were spiritually on fire for him again. But guess what happened? There's always a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And they turned from the Lord again. And this time they turned so hard. And they were so stubborn and arrogant in their ways that they missed the very Messiah himself. When Jesus came and presented himself to them as their Messiah on Palm Sunday, 32 AD, they missed it. And he said, if you had known, even you in this year day, the things that belong to your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes because you didn't know the time of your visitation and they missed it. And he said, therefore, your house is left unto you desolate. There shall not be one stone left upon another. It will all be thrown down. And it wasn't even 40 years from that point that Titus, Vespasian, and the Romans came in and they ransacked Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. They uncovered or they they dismantled it stone by stone, even as Jesus predicted. 
They slaughtered over a million Jews. They salted the fields. They made it a law, a decree that two Jews, if they were seen conversing together, they would both be killed on the spot. And the Jews were scattered in those days, 70 AD. They were scattered throughout the whole world. And Israel was left desolate, completely barren, a wasteland. But for 1,800 years, not 70 this time, 1,800 years, the Jewish people maintained their national identity wherever it was that they went in the world. They were hated. They were persecuted wherever they went. They were abused. They were mocked, just as Moses said would happen. They would become a byword, a reproach, a hissing. That happened everywhere they went. But for 1,800 years, they maintained their identity. Until 1894. And in 1894, a man named Alfred Dreyfus, a French Jew, was falsely accused of selling military secrets to the Germans. And there was a trial, but it was a sham trial. It was, you know, there was false evidence and false witnesses put forward. And, 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 you know, he was found guilty of it, even though it was proven that he wasn't even in the country at the time that the accusation was made. But the thing that was so big about that trial was not the framing of Alfred Dreyfus, but rather it was the response that the citizens of France had to that verdict. They marched in the streets, and they carried banners that said, death to the Jews, death to the Jews, kill the Jews. And there was a Jewish reporter that was there, and he was covering the story. His name was Theodore Herzl. And Theodore Herzl was appalled at the fact that they were saying death to all Jews, even though it was only one Jew, and everybody knew that he was innocent. And so here's what he did. He called together a council of prominent Jewish leaders in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And he said, look, if we don't have a homeland, if we don't have our own state and our own borders that we can protect ourselves, we are not going to make it. Look at what's happening to us. We're persecuted and hated everywhere we are. And so the determination of that council is that they decided that they would just begin moving back to the land of Palestine. And person by person, family by family, decision by decision, people uprooted from where they were throughout Europe and different parts of the world, and they emigrated back to that land, and they began just buying parcels of it from those that, you know, held deed to it. So they literally bought it. Then they drained the swamps, which were prolific. They irrigated the fields, which were a barren wasteland. And the land became fruitful and productive. Long story short, this move, this Zionist move, caught steam and many, 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 many Jews moved back into that land. Then the Holocaust happened, World War II. And because of the slaughter of six million innocent Jews by Adolf Hitler, the sympathetic ear of the world was opened. And it was brought to a United Nations vote on May 14, 1948. Should Israel be declared its own state? Should it be its own land, its own people again? And by one vote, the resolution passed. And Israel was declared to be a state again after 1800, no, at this point, almost 1900 years without a homeland. They became a nation again. The first time in human history that anything like that had ever happened, that a nation was overtaken, dispersed, 
and then brought back into their land and restored as a people. And yet God said it would happen. Now, why, is, why do I take the time to go into all that? Here's why. Because it's happening in our lifetime. What's happening? The fulfillment, the far fulfillment of this very prophecy that Moses is giving concerning his people, the Jews. See, it hasn't completed yet because Moses says, look, it's going to be bigger than just you coming back into your land. Notice with me in verse 6. Because here's what's going to happen when they come back. He says this. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on all those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. Now, I want you to consider with me for a moment. The first part of that fulfillment has taken place and is taking place as we speak. They've been brought back into their land. The land has been made productive and it's been made fruitful, but the people have not yet turned back to the Lord their God. When you read Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, God says that this is exactly how it's going to happen. He says the desolate land that was wasted for centuries is going to be fruitful, productive, and it's going to be inhabited again. That has taken place. Ezekiel 36 has already been fulfilled. Then, Ezekiel 37 is the vision of the dry bones. How many of you in preschool, kindergarten, you know, elementary school sang that song? The leg bones connected to the thigh bone, thigh bones connected you know, to the hip bone. You, you've heard that song? No? Okay. <laughs> it's a song, you know. But listen. That song comes right out of the text of Ezekiel chapter 37. Because what Ezekiel sees in the vision is he sees these bones coming out of the grave and they're all being joined to each other. And then he sees flesh being compiled onto these bones. And then the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and he asks him a question. Is everybody with me? He says this. He says, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Can these, in other words, there's going to be a physical revival, but yet it's still dead. The bones are going to come out of the grave. The flesh is going to come back on the bones. The appearance of life is going to be there outwardly, but yet they're still dead. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, the secret things belong to the Lord. (laughs) He does. Basically, he says, the Lord knows. I don't know. I don't know if they can live or not. But the Lord breathes upon the dry bones and they come to life. And God says, this is what's going to happen to my people. They are going to return to me and I will circumcise their hearts and they will call upon me and I will be to them a God and David will rule over them and it will be glory. Listen, the first half of that, the bones coming out of the grave, the flesh coming onto the bones, that has been fulfilled. We're looking at that when we look, turn on the news and we see Benjamin Netanyahu presiding over the people of Israel. That's the physical restoration. 
but they have not yet been spiritually revived. And the reason why that should excite you is because Jesus said, when you see the fig tree blossom, and I wish I had time to get in. I don't, I'm not, and I'm not gonna. But I wish I did. I wish I could get into the fig tree right now because it's that good. I hope that makes you thirsty. Read it. Matthew 22, 23, and 24. The fig tree represents Israel. And Jesus said this, when you see the fig tree putting forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, likewise, he says, when these things happen, you know that my coming is near, even at the door. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. So we're literally witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecy that Moses gave here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, right before our eyes. We're halfway through it. They're alive physically. They have yet to be revived spiritually, but they will. Now, because we're uh, uh, almost out of time, I cannot apply the other half of this thing, which is the same thing holds true for you. Do you know that? Did you know that if you are today estranged from the Lord, if you are a child of God, blood-bought by Jesus Christ, but yet you are walking in a way where you know you're not experiencing him because you're not walking rightly, and you are, in a sense, a captive, if you will wake up from that captivity, all you need to do is return to the Lord. And he will return to you. He'll restore you. He will bless you. And he will give to you the life that he's been wanting to give you from the very beginning. It's as true today as it was for them and is for them. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he gives them this prophecy, and then he gives them this final proposition. Notice with me in verse 11. He says, For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend it to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart that you may do it. In other words, listen, before he even tells them what this proposition is, he says, understand this. It's not a complicated thing. It's very, very simple. It's not up in heaven where you need someone to explain the esoteric mysteries of it to you. It's not on the far side of the sea where you need some guru or some eastern uh, you know, philosopher to come and explain to you the secret of how to experience God. It's very, very simple. It's so simple and it's so close to you that it's in your heart and it's in your mouth. Here it is, verse 15. Here's the proposition. It's so simple. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Two things. You can have life and good, or you can have death and evil. Now, some people want to say, well, can I just mix match that a little bit? Can I have life and evil? And, 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 and I can leave death and cursing over there, you know? No, 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 no. Two choices, very simple. Life and good, death and evil. You choose. He says, and then he explains, he says, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgment, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, 
and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over Jordan to possess it. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And so he gives to them this proposition that he sets before them. And then he explains it, and then he gives them a call. Notice there at the second half of verse 19, he says, Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. He calls them, and he even gives them the right answer. Isn't that great? There's only two choices here, life and good, death and cursing. Choose life. Choose life. You'll do good. You'll be glad you did it. Just choose life. Walk with the Lord. The same choice exists today. Although we're not in the same covenant that they were in, wherein we are right or wrong with God based upon our ability to keep the law, we're not under that covenant. But the Apostle Paul takes these very verses in Romans chapter 10 and he applies them to the decision that we are called to make concerning Jesus Christ. He says that they never attained unto the righteousness that Moses offered to them because they didn't have power to do it. But Paul says that there is a righteousness that comes from God, that's given to us a gift when we receive Jesus Christ. He says it's very simple. It's not up in heaven that you need someone to go get it. It's not on the far side of the sea. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. He says in your heart you make a choice to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for your sins and that by faith in who he is and what he did, that you are accounted righteous. It's a, cho- it's, a, it's a choice in your heart to believe. And then with your mouth, you confess him as the Lord and unto salvation. And it's the same choice. That's the choice that we're given. Will we choose life in Jesus Christ? Or will we choose death apart from Christ? He says, choose life that you might live, both you and your descendants forever. And then he closes the chapter, verse 20. He says that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Uh, He gives that final call to them. As we close, the musicians can come. How does rebellion happen in a nation such as this that we're looking at in our text? A nation that's been so close to the Lord, that's seen his provision and seen his goodness and his grace bestowed upon them in such such incredible ways. How does that happen, that they would turn away? Here's how it happens. It happens one person at a time. One person makes a decision that they're going to walk outside of the will of God and out of the counsels and the dictates that he has for their life. And then, and then that person influences another person and then another person is influenced. And, and, and little by little, an entire nation grows corrupt under the influence of those people that just decide, I'm not going to walk with the Lord. I don't want to do his will anymore until the point that a whole nation is corrupt before God. How does revival happen in a nation? That a people say, we want to turn back to the Lord. 
And we want to be in his blessing and in his favor and in his goodness and in his presence again. Here's how. It happens one person at a time. It happens when one person chooses life through Jesus Christ. And when they choose life through Christ, their life is changed and affected. And the presence and the blessing of God is then placed upon that life. And then that life influences another life. And they say, come, come to the God that I have met. Come, taste and see what I have tasted and what I see. And know the goodness of God in your life. And one by one, a people is brought back to God. Can I ask you as we close, which influence are you? Are you influencing people unto death and cursing? When they look at your life, when your kids look at your life, mom and dad, when your coworkers see you, the way that you deal and the way that you operate and the things that you say, what is the influence that's laid upon them? Are they then corrupted and brought into a place where the nation is becoming more at odds with God? Or... Are you influencing them for life? Do they look at you? Do they hear what you say? Do they see you, mom and dad? Do they see you? And they say, I want what they've got. Because they're experiencing the life and the peace and the freshness that that it is that I need. Which is it for you? Maybe you need to choose life. I believe that Jesus is coming real soon. I I really believe that Jesus is coming soon. But, if not, Even more than that, I believe our nation's in big trouble. Big trouble. I mean, I read last week a whole list of headlines to you about new problems. They were today's problems a week ago. Well, today's problems from today are just as bad. They're worse. The morning after pill now approved for any girl 15 and older without any. She can go to any drugstore and just purchase it, you know. Pot legalized, being legalized and, and, and you know, the debate about should, should it be legalized in more places. Homosexuality being applauded and you know, athletes being called heroes. Uh, regardless of whether or not it's right or wrong, they're being called heroes for it. What's happening in our midst? We have turned our backs on God. And the only hope that we have right now as a nation is revival. That's it is that we get on our knees, we humble ourselves before God, and we ask him to forgive us, and we change directions. And how does it happen? It happens one person at a time. Maybe you're here tonight, and it's time for you to turn your life back to Christ. I pray that God's Holy Spirit would give you the power and the wisdom to do it. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.